Hello friends, welcome to the second phase podcast. I'm Robin Graham, your host and a brand marketing strategist and photographer passionate about helping women connect and grow their audience and get more clients. I am so excited you're here with me today to chat all about branding, personal development and life overall in this second phase. What is the second phase? The second phase for me was a change in careers and learning how to navigate a new world and build the business from the ground up when I was actually terrified to put myself out into the world as something new. For some, the second phase is a significant lifestyle change, a traumatic loss, a move, an illness. It could be any number of things. No matter the definition of your second phase, we are here together to learn about creating a brand that stands out and makes an impact and grow as our authentic selves and follow our callings, our passions, our visions, and our values. Now grab your cup of coffee or the dog's leash and let's dive into a new episode. Ladies, welcome to the Second Phase Podcast. I am so thrilled that you're here today and I cannot wait to share your wisdom, your personalities, and your perspectives with my listeners. It is our 50th episode and to me, I... I couldn't be more honored that you're sharing this space with me and my platform with me to help others understand more about racism and Black Lives Matter and the entire movement and why after so many years, things are finally coming to a point where people are paying attention. And it's funny how God works in such mysterious ways because I'm not sure had we not had a global pandemic that our eyes and our ears would have been so focused and we would have been so attentive to the matters at hand. So for that, I'm thankful. Um, I'm also embarrassed, ashamed, sad that it took this experience for people's eyes to be open. And hopefully through our conversation today, we can ensure or at least help prevent that from ever happening again, that people, we will be able to educate and share our stories. You will be able to educate and share your stories through my platform. So with that, let's start with introductions and I will let you ladies jump in with who wants to go first. Sure. I'd, I'd like to jump in. So first of all, congratulations, Robin, on your 50th episode uh, I think that's a major milestone and, and just happy to be here with you ladies to have a very um, uncomfortable but passionate discussion, right? Um, my name is Tyra Bell and I'm originally from New Orleans, Louisiana. Um, I have lived in the greater Philadelphia area now for uh, just over 20 years. Um, my family and I have also had the opportunity to live in Puerto Rico for a year in Northwest Arkansas traveling with work. Um, I am a senior director at a major healthcare uh, company, and um, I do lead a global team. Um, so while this is all so real in the U.S., um, I look at and I'm very passionate about um, inclusion um, and equality for, for all. Um, I'm also a wife of 16 years, and I have three beautiful children, a daughter who's 13, uh, soon to be 14, and I have two sons. Uh, one's 12 and the other is 10. Um, you know, Robin and I connected, we're neighbors. And a few weeks ago, I can honestly say in the 23 years that I've been working for my company, 
um, it was the first time that I had a neighbor that actually reached out and said, Tyra, how are you doing in the midst of what's going on? Um, within a week was the first time in 23 years I had colleagues reach out and say, um, Tyra, how are you doing in the midst of going on? Um, and it's the first time that I've actually had the parents of my kids' friends ask, Tyra, how are you doing in the midst of everything that's going on? And so I say that because while um, I experience so many emotions, sometimes it's, it's anger, frustration, hurt, heartache, um, this time feels different and it gives me a glimpse of hope because the majority is actually reaching out to stand with the minority and to stand with the black community to really say black lives matter and to seek to understand. So that's where my passion comes from. I hope to be able to share my story uh, with you guys and reach others um, so that they can be empowered to drive change as well. Thank you. Jill, would okay. you like to go next? Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, my name is Jill Jones, and um, I've lived in Bucks County uh, for about 21 years, and um, originally from Brooklyn, New York, and my family moved all over the place, Kansas and Maryland, and finally settled down in a place called Columbia, Maryland, which was a planned community. Um, and I'm very thankful <laughs> that they moved there because it was uh, a little bit of a bold statement for you know a white Jewish family to move to this area. It was a planned community where all races um, were welcomed. Uh, you were not allowed. It was in the bylaws of Columbia to you know not rent to someone because of race. Um, you couldn't uh, get away with any of that nonsense in Columbia, basically, which was wonderful. So our you know growing up. The whole neighborhood was very diverse. It was kind of like the United Nations. And as kids, we knew no different. Like that was just how our lives were. And um, again, thankful to my parents for, for raising us that way. Bucks County is very, very different uh, from that. And, um, but it, you know, I, I think most people that grew up there um, in Columbia, I think we, we all left um, with the feeling that I think we, we had a very different um, experience than most kids growing up, white, black, Asian, whatever you may be, um, it, which again, I think was, uh, was a real benefit to me. Um, I think right now, uh, times are, are very difficult, unfortunately, because of the, the sad events that have occurred in the recent past there have been so many over the years but i think finally the press is um, publicizing this people are sharing it and i think white society is finally getting a chance to see the the up close pain and sadness um within the african-american community and you know the unfair unjust treatment of a whole race should never be tolerated, uh, let alone in, in 2020. It's beyond absurd. So, um, you know, I, I'm hoping that through, you know, educating people and creating awareness that, you know, hopefully I can, I can help a little bit. My husband is African-American. I have four uh, biracial kids who identify as African-American and, um, you know, so I, I hope I can I can share something, you know, within this conversation that's at least uplifting um, or helpful. 
Thanks, Jill. So my name is Erica DeVos and I am an educator. So I just finished my 23rd year teaching uh, in the North Penn School District here in Montgomery County. And I grew up in inner city Philadelphia. Uh, parents, uh, my mother was in special education and my father was a police officer. So growing up, I spent my summers in a rural part of North Carolina where the train tracks divided the, the town. Um, and in fact, it's a familiar small town. If you have ever seen like the Mount Olive pickles in the grocery store or Mount Olive relish, yeah. uh, that's the town that my mom's from. So I spent my summers feeding the hogs, <laughs> running around barefoot and, uh, you know, just being the apple of my grandfather's eye. And then I went to college in a rural place in Pennsylvania and then I moved to Delaware. I stayed, I lived in Delaware for a few years after I first got married and then we relocated back into Philadelphia. I have one child who just, I guess you can say graduated, kind of, sort of, <laughs> officially soon, uh, who's 18 and on his way to college in the fall, allegedly. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully. Ladies, again, thank you for being here. And I know that you all have a different perspective and different insight to offer. So my first question, the first thing that I would like to ask you is, how have you experienced racism in your lives? And are you comfortable sharing those stories? Can I go first? Yes. So when I went to go visit my grandfather, this was, I guess, the early 80s. We went to a restaurant and he was walking to another door and I said, I remember saying, where are you going? It says open, come right here. And he's like, oh, I was just going to go in the other door. I'm like, I'm not, I'm going in this door right here where it says open. And I didn't realize uh, what I was doing at the time, but my mom and I had a conversation later on in life and she told me that I decided to, to not follow the rules of how they did things in that small rural town. And I went in the store the way I felt like it. And she was proud of me, she, even though I didn't know what I was doing at the time. Mm -hmm. So there was a separate entrance in the 80s. I don't know that they would call it separate. Well, I guess you could now, <laughs> but now that I think about it. Uh, I guess they just, people went in different doors. Mm. Yeah. Wow, interesting. Yeah, the 1980s, early 80s, but still the 1980s. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. amazing. And then, <clears throat> so I went to, I went to public school and my schools were, I went to the neighborhood school, which I wouldn't say was segregated. It had some other ethnicities, but my neighborhood by that point was primarily uh, African-American. There was a shift in the 70s and, and into the community. And I went to high school in a very diverse community in um, Roxborough. But interestingly enough, I've never taught in the inner city, even though that's where I'm from. And I'll tell you why. So about 23 years ago, I was student teaching in a rural part of Pennsylvania in Wellsboro, PA, in, in a first grade class. And I'll never forget this little boy. He came up to me. It was my first day of student teaching. And he said, how did you do that? And I said, well, how did I do what? He was like, how did you do that to your skin? I am going to go home and do it tonight. 
And wow. it took me back. Wow. For a minute. wow. And I'm like, wow. I, I didn't process right away what he was implying. And then I realized that, oh my gosh, he has never like been this close to a black person. He was mesmerized by me. And I wouldn't call that racism, experiencing it, but it just made me think that maybe I shouldn't teach in the inner city because we see people that look like us. I should teach in places where it's not the norm to see people that look like you. And that's why I love you, Erica. Yeah. <laughs> that's a difficult choice. That is yeah. definitely a difficult choice. Yeah. Yes. Well, but you know what? It didn't seem difficult. It seemed like the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because um, I think for me, raising three black kids in, in the Bucks County School District, um, while we've only been in it for five years, I have yet to see uh, any teacher that's a person of color, let alone a black mm-hmm. teacher. And um, from the elementary school, and I think the only black person in the middle school, if I'm not mistaken, is, is an administrator in the, in the front office. So it's, it's an interesting dynamic. But when I think back to my childhood, I actually grew up, um, I went to a Catholic school from kindergarten to ninth grade. Um, I too had never had a, a black teacher. It was a predominantly white school. Um, although the areas that I grew up in, um, my parents uh, both had really good jobs with the with the phone company, so they were were corporate, um, but they were first generation, right? My mom had one year of college. My dad had none, but he was an eternal student. I mean, he was an electronics engineer who um, was in the Air Force, so that was where he got his education. And so he was an electronics technician for the phone company, and my mom was a cost accountant. Okay. Um, but my family. Um, so my grandparents lived in the projects of New Orleans. Um, my, my mom's side uh, was the exact opposite, was all entrepreneurs. So everyone had their own business. You know, my grandfather had his own business. His siblings had a barbershop, hair salon. My great-grandmother owned her own restaurant. So I saw both sides of the struggle. And then I also saw the side of my family who, worked very hard to obtain everything that they had. Um, And it wasn't until my adult years, just a year ago, sitting down with my grandparents that I realized um, while they have several properties and land, there was land that was taken from my family, right? Um, And so for me, I think my first experience with racism, and there's so many both personally and professionally that I've experienced, but I can think back to, I did go to a public high school that was uh, predominantly white. It might've been 60, 40, or 70, 30. Um, and we as, as seniors had gone to what was called the Lakefront in New Orleans, Louisiana, just a place people would hang out, um, really nice place. And several of the white students would go and hang out on the lakefront. And so some of us, it was about 15 black uh, students that all got together. It was our, our senior year. And so we thought it'd be great to go hang out on the, the lakefront. Um, no alcohol, no drugs, just kids being kids, sitting down, having conversations, talking about life, talking about who was going to college, who wasn't. And before we knew it, there were four cop cars that had pulled up. And all of the guys that were with us ended up in handcuffs, taken to jail. 
um, and all of the females, while we weren't taken to jail, we all had court dates. Fortunately, my uncle was a police officer and one of the girls' moms was a police officer in New Orleans. And so with that, we were able to not have to show up for court, but imagine the majority of us trying to, you know, all we're thinking about is college. And now you have young black men who have arrests on their records for something as fun as hanging out the same way our white uh, mm -hmm. friends did. And so I realized very early that some of the privileges other people may have had, um, we, we didn't have as, uh, as, as blacks. And um, it was just, it was a really rude awakening. Um, and there's so many other uh, examples that we've had, or I've had exposure uh, with police officers. There's some positive, but all too many negatives that have, that should have been just a regular engagement uh, turned into, uh, you know, people in handcuffs. So just to answer your question, Robin, too, about my experiences with racism. Can I ask mm -hmm. a question growing up in New Orleans? Yeah. What was your... You said you went to Catholic school, right? For 10 years, yep. And okay. then uh, high school for the last three, or, you know, kindergarten and ninth grade, and then, and then uh, public school from 10 through 12. Yeah. So growing up at your time, I'm assuming we're around the same age. So your generation was the post-Ruby Bridges generation. So what effects did that have on public education where you lived? You know, um, Honestly, I don't know the answer to that, uh, Erica. It, it, as far as the, the the true implications, I will tell you that there were differences. So I will say the public school I went to was in the suburbs. Um, the most of the public schools in New Orleans and still struggle to this day with subpar education. Mm -hmm. um, I will say the school district. Um, wow, has a lot to be desired, and even though integration finally happened there still was based on where you lived i think in some cities you would call it redlining right where they would try to carve off a certain economic and social status that's mm -hmm. how our high schools were divided okay so, yeah yeah that that that's the impact that i would still say so most of the schools uh still had you know one way or the other a strong racial profile and Jill, how about you? Well, it's interesting because um, as a family, um, when we moved into Doylestown to Bucks County, um, we, you know, young family, I think this, I was due with my, my second child. Um, so I would come up and go visit the house and see it being built and I was all excited. And, um, you know, met a few families along the way uh, when I was up there. And years later, um, found out that uh, through a, a person who, who worked in the neighborhood, he was really nice, unfortunately he passed away. Um, but he said, you know, you do know that your neighbors, um, one of your neighbors was not excited to have you guys move in. And I said, what do you mean? <laughs> Had no clue, no clue. Um, and he said, because of your family, uh, your husband and you having, you know, there was a lot of talk. It almost sounded like, you know, as he's put it, the 1950s again. And I said, 
oh, okay. And he's like, well, do you want to know who it is? And I said, no, I don't want to know who it is. Um, I have my guesses, but I, I never wanted to find out. And all of the kids in the neighborhood, when we were there, everyone was friends and we all, you know, all got to know each other and it was, it was fine. Never heard anything to my face ever. Um, and, but unfortunately my children, you know, um, I hate, I hate to say it cause you have younger kids, but you know, as they, as they get up through, um, you know, Holocong and, uh, kids are kind of showing themselves a little bit. It, my kids, all of them in multiple scenarios have heard the N word, um, in, in multiple contexts and, you know, even, even good friends, um, will say it. And, um, so there's, there's been many times in which they wanted to handle it on their own. And there were a few other times where, um, I'm usually never silent. I may not, you know, bomb somebody out in public, but I will message them and contact them and, and make, you know, make it aware that, oh, do you know that your child is, is saying this? Or do you know that they're doing this? Because I don't, I don't feel like silence is ever the way to go. Um, but again, do understand that the kids, you know, don't want their mom going, excuse me, you know, I'm going to handle this for you. But, but that's the only way you can educate. Because, you know, again, and I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but, um, you know, the, the N word with an A at the end does not make it okay. Um, and a lot of children, unfortunately, they are just not aware that it's, it's not okay. So let's move on a little bit because Jill, you, sure. you used the N word, or, I mean, you didn't say the N word, but you referred yeah. to the N word. And I, in my opinion, that word is, is awful. Like when, when I was young, we were taught, you never say that word. Like it was just not a word that was ever used in our home or, or anything. So, um, now though, I hear that word in music, you know, like to the, the music that the, the Peloton bike instructors play, or, you know, sometimes you get in the car and a song is on. So my question to you is, what is the difference? Because I find, I find it confusing. You know, growing up, even though I lived in an inner city where it was like heavily populated, I don't remember hearing that word until high school. And if my memory serves me correctly, I believe it was the evolution of rap music, which took a word and tried to take away the negative connotation of it by interjecting it into lyrics. Okay, well, the, and then that makes sense. But is it, when it's used in the music like that, is it, is it used in a positive way or is it a derogatory? No, <laughs> no it's still derogatory. It's still derogatory, right? It's still derogatory. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it, it's, unfortunately, we are growing up um, in a culture and in a society where, where people are, it, it's both sides, right? It's used in a negative connotation and then some people are using it, I don't even want to say as a word of affirmation because that's not the right word, but by association. Right. Um, and with the A on the end, like Jill said, right? But mm -hmm. it still shouldn't be, right, it still shouldn't be tolerated. And um, unfortunately, my 10-year-old this year was called that word at school, right? My 
13 year old has heard it in the hallways and one of her friends accidentally said it. And when he realized she was there, he was like, (gasps) but he walked up to the other white kid and was like, what's up my nigga, you know? And she was floored that the word had even been used. Right. And he apologized for saying it in her presence. And she had to correct him to say, you shouldn't use the word period. And, Mm -hmm. and, and it is a struggle because we are part of a society right now where it is used so broadly in music, but it's one of those words that just should never be used or tolerated. And, and in my perspective, there isn't a difference, although I recognize that our youth of today sees it as if they're singing along with a song and it's being stated that it's okay and it's still not. So. I don't know yeah, if that answers your question, um, Robin, but no, it does answer my yeah. question. I mean, it clarifies for me that it's still not okay. No. And that was that at the end of the day was my question. Like, yeah. what mm-hmm. is, like yes. why, why would they do that? And I think that, you know, these kids that hear it, they just think, well, okay, they're black and they're saying it. So I guess it's okay. Mm-hmm. And I, so it confuses yeah. the younger generation. So I think they're doing yep. more harm with using that word in the lyrics than yeah. any good that could possibly come from using it. Okay. So with that, now my next question is terminology. And this is something that really was just brought to my attention recently when people use the term people of color. People of color does not mean African-American or black. It's all people of color. But sometimes people will use it to refer specifically to African-American or black people. But then what, but then you hear, and I think just in our conversation, we've used the term African-American, we've used the term black. What what is the appropriate term and or is there a time when one term is and i don't even know if term is the right right word i you can help me there but when should we use those words and those phrases versus one over the other for me i think i my personal preference is african-american however there are times where you're forced to choose a nationality on a form and African-American isn't written, so you go with black. Uh, I, I don't want to be called a Negro. Uh, so I, I would, Afri- and if I put them in order of preference, I would say African-American, black, Negro. Okay. And um, I, w- I would say the same because I am an African-American. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I do recognize though is I do have a lot of black colleagues aren't African-American. Their descent Mm -hmm. may be, right, they truly may be of African heritage. Mm -hmm. And so I recognize that for some, when you are describing color of skin, I notice people are starting to use the term black again more regularly than than African-American. So that's why I do see the need for inclusiveness because regardless of origin, we're facing the same challenge or the same level of discrimination because of the color of our skin. Mm -hmm. Um, But like Erica, Negro has such a connotation and a derogatory meaning, especially because it was used so often during slavery or during segregation, um, that it is not widely, it's not accepted. And I don't know any Black or African American that would, would prefer that term. Um, what I will say that I noticed in corporate people of color, it, it came on the scenes. I want to say at least 10 plus years ago. Um, it, it, it actually, honestly, the first time I heard that it threw me for a loop because 
my mind went to colored people, which is again, not something that um, has a positive tone because of, yeah. because of segregation. Right. And, um, but then I learned over time that at least in the workforce, it was termed in another way of representing minorities, right? So then it, it was representative of, of all people of color. And I think in that sense, um, in my mind, it's okay to use, and in, in, it, it is used more broadly to represent multiple cultures uh, or multiple uh, people as, as minorities. That makes sense. And the reason I ask that, and I, I have said black more than I've said African-American, because when I was in pharmacy school, someone corrected me and said, I'm not African-American, call me black. Right. And yeah. so, you know, that was my yeah. only experience to have anyone tell me what I should mm -hmm. be saying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Were they yeah. of another descent, like maybe Haitian or um, like, they were, did they have, were they multi-racial? I know they weren't multi-racial, but I don't know what their actual heritage was. I was 18 okay. and that was my really, you know, outside of my father's friends, that was my first real introduction mm -hmm. to a large population of African-American or any people of color because in the town I grew up in, there, there was no diversity. It was very similar to, to Doylestown in Buckingham, except we were 3,000 people that were all German and Polish pretty much, you know? Mm -hmm. So totally, totally different um, life experience in terms of growing up. So when I got to college, I, my eyes were open to a whole new world, which was, which was fascinating to me because I'm such a curious person and I love to learn. So um, and of course, you know, working in, in the hospital pharmacy setting, they were all way older than I was. They were adults and I was just, you know, starting college. So it was, um, a great way for me to learn and be able to ask questions safely. Mm -hmm. But I don't remember uh, Erica, honestly, okay. what, what nationality or what, um, their heritage was. Yeah. Another, another point too, like with my children, um, I, they, all identify as African-American, but um, biracial is the term that they try to get across if someone refers to them as mixed because they don't like mixed mm -hmm. at all. Neither do I. I've never liked Neither that. Neither do I. Yeah. Um, so, you know, biracial, multiracial, if there's, yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. That's, a, that's really good to know, Jill. Mm -hmm. I think that will open a lot of people's eyes as well. So this is something that may seem trivial, but it's annoying. So if you are African-American and let's say you have certain features or your hair is a certain way, uh, people are often, often asked, are you mixed? Mixed with what? You know what I mean? Right. So like my, so I am the darkest of my sisters, but my youngest sister, she has straight curly hair, her hair, it you if you straighten it the wind blows and it's curly again that's just how she is but she's often asked you know are you mixed and well she's not as nice as i am with her response but, <laughs> <laughs> but she hates that yeah and, yeah mm -hmm. you know i think people should understand that african-americans come in many textures including mm -hmm. skin color hair color we we don't all look the same or fit a certain type of mold so 
no one, whether you're biracial or African-American wants to be called mixed because by saying that it's like a negative connotation when they say you're mixed. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Well, which yeah. is really kind of silly because very few of us are one thing. <laughs> That's true. I yeah. mean, I'm right. like yeah. a dozen yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. when I did 23 yeah. and me. So, you know, yeah. it's like nobody wants to be called that. Right. Because by saying mix, it takes away, it washes away your identity. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, that's a great perspective. Thank you for sharing that, Erica. I like that. Um, okay, so ladies, I want to talk a little bit about fear. Actually, I want to talk a lot about fear because okay. this is where, you know, Tyra, when you and I talked in the driveway that day and we both ended up in tears and yeah. you shared things with me that, you know, I had, I had thought about, but yeah. I hadn't thought deeply about, I hadn't spent time really diving into it or really thinking deeply about it. And I have, I have sons, but when my sons leave home, I say a prayer for their safety and I might worry a little bit, but my worry is that they're going to get home safe and they're not going to get in a car accident. When your boys well, the two of you who have older boys and Tyra, I know you and I had the conversation that when your boys are older, you're going to have the same fear. You have completely different fears and worries mm -hmm. when your children leave your home. Yeah. It could be as simple as them driving the car or getting to turn their car turn signal on and being pulled over. It could be going yeah. to a lake yeah. with your friends and being in handcuffs. So I would like to talk about this because this brings us into not only the fear of something, something happening to them when they leave your home that could be minor, but something that could change the course of their life forever, whether mm -hmm. they're innocent, most likely innocent or guilty. Yeah. Um, and we see this happen. And from the statistics that I've, I've read, one in, one in three black men will experience jail time in the course of their life. And to me, that statistic is profound and frightening. And we can dive into the history of how all of this came to be, that that is the number that it is and the statistic that it is compared to other races. But I want you each, if you can, explain that fear that you live with every day. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I guess I'll start with, with this one. You know, one of the things I was I was sharing with Robin um, when she asked how I was doing and um, just the heartache, the everyday concern long before any of this ever started. The fact that my five-year-old daughter, when she was in kindergarten, was told she would never get picked for a game because her skin was too dark. And maybe that's not on the fear side, but when my, my husband tells me at nine o'clock at night that he's run into Wawa in, in, in Bucks County, right? Where I just talked about the population and the demographics of, uh, of Blacks is very small. Um, I literally fear every time, he's just running to go get a quick snack and coming back home and I'm saying, Lord, please bring my husband back to me. Um, what I was sharing is that, you know, my boys are 10 and 12 and they're running around this neighborhood and they look like cute little kids. But when they're 16, 
and they look more like men, will they be seen as a threat? You know, not so much by their friends, parents who know them and know the character of my kids, but by those who don't know them and feel like they don't have the right to be here or to question their existence if they're taking a jog. I mean, even now, I tell them you cannot ride in this neighborhood after a certain hour by yourself. If they're just going around the corner, like my heart is throbbing. Yesterday, my 12-year-old was riding home less than a mile. I'm standing outside at the corner, just making sure there's no experiences that are negative that he could possibly have. You know, my daughter wants to hang out in downtown Doylestown with her friends, and I have to teach her if your friends are making a bad decision, you immediately extract yourself from that situation because you may not get the same benefit of the doubt that someone else will in the midst of, of accusations. So I've been followed in stores as teenagers because of the color of my skin, making assumptions I'm going to shoplift. And that's the fear of the experiences. But I realize I can't shelter them. I can only educate them, not where they're looking for it, but that they're prepared if it happens and they know how to respond. Um, but that, those are the fears that when I talk to my white female colleagues or friends are raising white kids, they're like, Tyra, we don't have to have those conversations. We don't have to, my biggest fear, one of my colleagues shared with me recently is, is is her son going to be confident enough, you know, to be successful in life. Right. And, um, and, and, and she was just like, I just cannot imagine the level of conversations you're having to have with your kids um, at this age. So that is my experience. Um, and it's one that I wanted to share so people could understand that added um, layer, a burden that, that I think we carry as raising uh, you know, African-American kids in, in this society that has, we've come a long way, but we have so much farther mm-hmm. to go. Yeah. I think, I think I'll piggyback off that. It's like, it's a, a joke, like in the black community, like when you are a child going to the store, you get to talk. You don't want anything, <laughs> don't touch anything, you can't have anything. <laughs> so yeah. it's it's funny as, a, as a, a small child, but as your child grows, that talk becomes, when you go into the mall, you remove your hood, you look up, you're not running, you're not around chaos, you know, don't look suspicious, you don't want anyone following you. If you have a problem, you call me, they don't want to answer to me. I mean, it just goes on and on, but it it goes from sweet and innocent and funny into serious. This is what you do. This is situation A, B, C, you know, so that it progresses. We have to teach our children, when uh, African-American moms, uh, about social norms and help them understand that even though you may not be doing anything wrong, you are guilty until proven innocent. Yeah. It's the opposite almost. Exactly. Very. Exactly. You know, when I'm engaging with others and people who are watching or listening may say, you know, what can I do? And I think the more we can have the conversations because Robin, there's so many like you who might have grown up in areas where they didn't get exposed to other African-Americans or other Blacks. And so when you look at what's portrayed 
in social media, which sometimes portrayed on the news or what's portrayed, um, there's this fear um, of, of the unknown, right? And so I think the more we can have these conversations so that people can understand through others the reality um, we're talking about humanity and the fact that we're still in 2020 having to talk about mm-hmm. blacks being treated less than, you know, and in, in, in inequality still being at the forefront of so much, you know, my ask is that as people become aware to educate others, right? Because if they don't have friends like you have, you can pick up the phone or Jill, you're in Jack and Jill or Robin, you know, if you don't have those you can connect to to understand, then there's this disconnect from humanity and all you're going off of is what you see on the news, which quite mm-hmm. honestly, I barely watched because the representation of black men in that setting is none other than positive. And that's another thing. Like my young boys would come in and say, mom, why are all the black men, you know, being taken to jail or, you know, that's not how Mm -hmm. I want them to see themselves. And so you might call it sheltering them when they see it, it makes for a teachable moment. Um, But I also don't want them to see it on such a regular that they think that that is what our community is made of because it's Mm -hmm. it's not, it's such a small representation so people right. present it as if it's as if it's the majority of the black community. And I like to piggyback off of that and say that when my son was younger and I only have a, one child, I purposely did not watch the news while he was around because I wanted the images of him. I wanted the images that he saw to be positive, not always shown in a negative light. Like even like TV shows, um, you know. It's just certain shows portray certain things. Um, I don't know. I I was very intentional with what I watched in his presence. And I think that's that's wise. And you know that that brings me to another question. Um, Or Jill, do you have anything to add to that? Actually, before we move on. Um, I I mean, I I think it's it is scary. I mean, as far as you know the day-to-day um for for all of my kids my husband um when you were mentioning you know going to wawa that's my husband's thing 10 o'clock 11 o'clock at night um or saying at 11 o'clock at night he was going to go out for a walk and i was like what no and he's looking at me like what are you talking about why not you know it's not it's not a problem and i'm going yeah no it, it is it is a problem it's doylestown i'm, I'm it's a problem. Okay, so we touched on this just a little bit, and and that is the media. And one of the questions mm-hmm. I had was, how is how does the media affect us every single day by putting out so much negative content? You know, we're not seeing, and right now we're living in a time where there's so much news, mm-hmm. and we're not seeing we're not seeing beautiful images of people silently pro protesting or having Mm. these rituals that are peaceful and they're holding hands and crying together, but they're showing all of the violence and all of the anger and all of the hate. And how, how can that possibly help the younger generations want to promote peace or want to become peaceful across Mm -hmm. all communities? 
So I, I would love to hear your perspectives on this because I mean, this is just my perspective, but it frustrates me and I don't find it helpful. I find yeah, it hurtful. I agree. So I want to say that there are so many hidden biases, whether they're known, well, if it's hidden, it's not known, but people have so many hidden biases, they don't even realize it, especially like even, you know, on the news. So uh, here, here's my example. Uh, during the, the peaceful protests, and there was instances of rioting and looting, there was a white woman who clearly didn't work in the store um, going around picking up things, and someone from the media said, oh, she probably works in the store and is putting everything back. No, wow. it was clear she was looting. She yeah. Was looting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but you um, immediately assumed that, that she worked there when it was obvious she didn't work there, but it was just, um, I guess the best way to say it is that people of color are not afforded the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, 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 I would agree. And, um, you know, it's a two-edged sword, right? I think that we see more now than we have in years. These killings and brutality didn't just start, right? They've no. been going on for ages. So, so, yes. And so you, we now have the luxury of having more visibility to that, right? Think about- In real time. Right. Think before right. cell phones had, had white America heard about a George Floyd without watching that eight minute and 46 second video, would the outpouring of anger and frustration that the majority is now feeling, seeing all of these things, have possibly been able to occur? No, right? Because it would have been narrative in a newspaper or it would have been told a certain way. There was no spin on this video. You couldn't now. No. There are some that still choose to spin spin things the way they want to see them, but the majority of people can watch these videos or watch the Amy Cooper video in Central Park or watch Ahmaud Arbery jogging down the street and fortunately seeing mm -hmm. a video where he was just blatantly attacked when the mm -hmm. lie was, he, yep. they feared for their life. So, so that's where I think the media is good. The problem that I have is the flip side of that is the constant negative press where we lose sight of the root of the issue, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So in all of those things mm -hmm. where you have the systemic racism and our police brutality, and then they're focusing on the looting and the rioting, where that mm -hmm. might've been 10, maybe 20% of the 100% of riots, I mean, of protests that were happening, right? Mm -hmm. So that's where my frustration kicks in where they choose to spin it and only focus on the negative. So then people whose eyes should be open can't be open because the first thing they're thinking about is the looting and they're not thinking about the issue at hand and why there's a people who feel that they haven't gotten anything in life, that they're in such a desperate way that they would take. And I'm not saying it's right. You know, I'm not condoning looting or rioting. Don't get me wrong, you know, but protests are very much needed for people to be aware of the injustices. And so that's the issue I think I have. But at some point, Robin, I get to the point where I have to cut it off. It was the same way with Hurricane Katrina. 
I must have watched the news over and over and over again. And finally, I got to a point where I realized they were showing the same kid holding a gun in the middle of the street. And anyone who was watching it would think that there was mayhem in New Orleans as if people were just walking around with guns taking over the city. But that was the narrative they chose to create, right? And so I think we have to be careful of the narrative that the media is choosing to spin mm-hmm. and make sure we look, we, we call it smoking mirrors, right? Look beyond right. that and really try to get to the root of why the, 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 the chaos and the turmoil is actually happening. And that mm-hmm. would, so that's my perspective, kind of a tale of two cities or a two-edged sword. Yeah. No, I would agree 100%. And I think, you know, Erica, you, you brought in the term biased. And yeah. if people are, if people have innate bias, or no, I shouldn't say innate, it's not innate bias, but if they have bias that they have developed over time because of experiences or what they've been taught, yeah. this is not helping to remove those biases. This is only no. increasing that bias yeah. because now they're agree. looking at the, the people that are looting and doing these things and they're thinking, see, we were right all along. Yeah. And I think that's what bothers me the most is that we're just fueling that fire when we really want to put it out so desperately. I agree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Robin, you and I spoke uh, about uh, I, my, one of my sayings is, well, this is a police officer's daughter saying, well, not for me. It's just, you hear this all the time growing up. For every action, there's a reaction. And I feel like in America, um, the media focuses on the reaction and not the action. Like uh-huh. what preceded the reaction? The reaction is an outpouring of frustration that people have experienced for centuries. Mm-hmm. That's the reaction. But at what point are we going to talk about the action? Because without that action, there's no reaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's just an instance that, you know, I think something that we we have to address also. And I think you need to you need to call out biases when we see it. And mm-hmm. it's just important that I think um, we just can't allow the negative depictions of a few take away from the positive images of everyone else. Mm-hmm. But I'll be honest, this is no different than the civil rights movement where, mm-hmm. where Martin Luther King was demonized. How many yeah. times was he arrested? He has a whole book called Letters from the Birmingham Jail. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I didn't yeah. say the title correctly, but this, this, is, this is not new. Yeah. No. Nothing that we are seeing is new. No. It may be new to a few, but this is the same plight that African Americans have dealt with since the Civil War. Yeah. And, you know, Tyra, when we were talking that day in the driveway was, I said that, I said, you know, it's like the 60s all over again. Yeah. And you said, this has been going on for 400 years. Yeah. And, you know, foolishly, I didn't think about that. I was thinking what I knew and what I learned about in history books, right? which, I mean, how many black people, African-American people have we learned about in history books? Right. That's especially in school. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. How many? Right. Yeah. I mean, Martin yeah. Luther King. Frederick Douglass. Frederick right. Douglass. Yeah. And that's, and that's what's actually, if you look here, maybe Christmas those are, addicts. 
Yeah, right. Marcus Garvey, no, right? You might have learned about MLK, you know, uh, and so many others, but um, yeah, that yeah. that is the challenge. It, it was chosen. It was chosen for us. Oh, very definitely. specifically. Definitely. Yeah, yes, and absolutely. So much left out. But yeah. I was going to say too, I'm 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 a glutton for punishment, so I I do turn on all of the different news channels because I want to see what the other side is saying. I do the same. <laughs> so, I do the same. Yeah, right? I mean, it's important, I think. Yeah. Like, you know, but I do, you know, I will say, um, just like Tyra was saying, I, I think it's, it, there is a lot of positive coverage um, that is coming out of it. And I think you're right. I think if, if the clip had not, the eight minutes was not shown to yeah. America, um, you know, I, th I think there are a lot of positive images that people are seeing and, you know, when you do watch the marches, um, I don't know if it's hitting home with people that need to have it um, resonate with them. I, I don't know if it's happening or not because they're probably not watching those stations um, because there is definitely a whole other spin yeah. to what's happening out there. Um, yeah. And the images, you know, and, and just like, you know, Erica said, it, it's been the same thing over and over again for all these years, mm -hmm. the same images. And um, it, it's just, I, I think right now, if they can get more and more images out there to everyone, I think the awareness is going to be key and it's the media hopefully can be a positive force. Um, it, you know, nothing's going to turn around overnight, but I mean, I will say it, it was amazing to see, you know, in, in the little Jewish town that I grew up in, in, um, in Massachusetts, in Brookline, there a whole mass of white people with protest signs. Yeah. I, I was like almost in tears watching yeah. it, thinking this little, I mean, are you kidding? In Massachusetts? Right. Um, it was when I was, I was very little when we lived there, but for the most part, you know, pretty racist um, back when I was a little kid. And um, so that, you know, so there are certain things that out of all of this, there have been some positives that have come and seeing people who have actually spoken up and you're like, oh, okay. You didn't know that about them. You, you know, you had no idea and they're, they're coming out and they're speaking out. Mm -hmm. And I think really right now, anyone really keeping silence, keeping silent about the, the issues and just kind of glossing over, it's very telling. Yeah. Um, and so I think you know, everyone who's putting out positive messages on Facebook and Instagram and um, it helps. I think yeah. every little bit, I think that's our own, you know, personal media coverage um, to try to share as much as you can that's positive with, yeah. with friends, family, whomever, um, and just keep spreading the word. And yeah, you know. I think it's definitely opened um, that line of communication I mean, you know, if you think about it, I never would have done this mm -hmm. and I wouldn't have had the same conversation mm. with you, Tyra, on the driveway, yeah. yeah, you know, that we connected in a completely different level and, yeah. and different way. And you opened my eyes to things and I am well read, you know, I've read all these things and I, and, but you don't, until you see it happen or, you know, someone it has happened to, it doesn't <laughs> register. Yeah. It's print on a page yeah. if it doesn't affect you. And yeah. I think that's the most important thing that we can take away from this is that we now have opportunities to communicate 
But just like you said, Erica, we have to take action and we have to have the uncomfortable conversations. Oh, absolutely. You know, I thought about something you said, Tyra, earlier when you were talking about uh, your colleagues reaching out to you. So one day I was talking to a colleague. He had reached out to me. We actually worked together before he left the classroom. And he said, I, I just have a hard time in 2020 seeing the things that I'm seeing on TV. He said, I thought the country was headed towards, towards change after the Rodney King beating in the 90s. And I said, well, it's interesting that you say that. However, not long after Rodney King was the OJ Simpson thing. So here's something that's going to, where the divide was be, was shortening. Now you have uh, OJ Simpson and, you know, he's on trial for murdering a white person. And so insert the race. And then now we're going this way instead of this way again. It was so, always, yeah, something to. Always a part of what's going on in the country, whether we choose to acknowledge it or not. Well, Erica, you and I had this conversation, and this brings us to the next discussion point, and that is history. Oh, let's and, talk about history. I love talking about history. And you know, you're not going to find this in the book. No, <laughs> it's not in the books. And yeah. you know, you you learn, and especially as a white person, you know, mm -hmm. the Civil War is touched on. And I I loved Abraham Lincoln. I've always loved all of his quotes. I thought he was this great man, and. You know, I grew up in Illinois, for goodness sakes. Well, that's where right. he was from, right? Mm -hmm. But so, okay, he did that. And the war was fought and the slaves were supposed to be freed. What I didn't know, what I was never taught was that actually all of the slaves were not freed. Mm -hmm. And that's why there's Juneteenth. Yes. Who yeah. would have ever known, you know? Yeah. until I went out of my little box of the Midwest. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there, there's that. But then there's also the fact that the Civil War didn't end slavery. Maybe no. the, slaves were, the slaves were let go. Maybe they were set no. free. But immediately, mm -hmm. immediately, mm -hmm. the economies crashed. And so what happened? Mm -hmm. They needed the free workers. They needed mm -hmm. the slaves. So what yes, happened? Yes, they, they arrest them at the well, drop of the Well, first they had to come up with a new set of rules, though. Uh, absolutely, but they did in order so, to justify. So they they yeah. could easily justify injustice, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. re-instill re them as slaves, but as prisoners instead. Yeah. And that is still going on today. Yep. And people right. don't realize that. Yeah. So let, let's talk about this a little bit, girls. <laughs> all right. Can I go first? I've been waiting for this moment all night. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So we, in order to, so I spoke to Robin and I said, before we can talk about like the removal of historic monuments, can we actually acknowledge history? So can we talk about the history of America from 1865 to 1954, almost 100 years? We all know that after the Civil War and the African Americans were not free following the ratification of the 13th Amendment because what happens post-Civil War? Jim Crow laws. Yeah. Jim Crow laws established black codes, which existed for nearly a hundred years. And black codes were strict local and state laws meant to marginalize African-Americans by detailing how former enslaved people could be, how they could work, how they could be compensated, how they could travel. There's um, 
and then black citizens who didn't follow these codes that they were unaware of, they were forced into indentured servitude and their rights were taken away. But then you have to understand in order to put this in historical context that the legal system was stacked against African-American citizens because the former Confederate soldiers were the policymakers. Yeah. They're the police, they're the judges, they are the people in the community. If the slaves didn't even know they were free for two years, do you think that they were police officers? They are judges? They are not. So the Confederate soldiers, they became the police officers and judges. And then what happens? The legal system ensures that African Americans are punished severely to keep the economy and to grow it and through indentured servitude. And then that continues. So we have the end of the Civil War. I have my notes on my other computer. So I don't know if you are familiar with this case, but this is a big case for educational law. Do you know Plessy versus Ferguson, 1896? I don't know. Okay. So in 1896, well, it, it happened before this, but this is a Supreme Court decision. The Supreme Court is it started in 1892. So you had a person, his name was Homer Plessy. He was a multiracial man. And what happened was he, he considered himself, well, he was primarily seven eighths white and one eighth black. So he was a passenger on a railroad train and in, 19, in 1892, and someone wanted him to go to the color only section and he refused. But this is the railroad, not the the bus and so um he what what happened was he was he was arrested and the supreme this case went all the way up to the supreme court and the supreme court affirmed that um it was legal to separate people by race and that became so what happened is um plesty's argument was that his constitutional rights were violated but the supreme court ruled that a law that implies merely a legal distinction between whites and black was not unconstitutional. And so this is 1896. So this is affirming the Jim Crow laws. And all of these laws preceded, uh, that preceded that time, you know, they were affirmed in the Southern states. And these laws were commonplace until the civil rights movement in the 60s. So you're talking from a time period of 1865 until now. So then if you, okay, so Plessy versus Ferguson is a court case that shaped Brown versus the Board of Education, 1954. And so it was through this court case that um, the Chief Justice Earl Warren, he wrote that the doctrine of separate but equal has no place in public, in, uh, public education and calling segregated schools inherently unequal and declaring that the plaintiffs in the Brown versus the board case were being deprived of the equal protection of the laws guaranteed by the 14th Amendment. So in 1896, this one Supreme Court case affirmed that that separate but equal was legal and it wasn't until 1954 that it was ruled down. So when we talk about understanding the historical context of some of these monuments, you have a group of people who have been marginalized now for hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. It has been 
there have been pleas, there have been conversations, but no one has been listening, even when action had been taken. I mean, you would think that what happened in the 60s should have at least turned this around a little bit, and it didn't. And what I've learned is that a lot of this has continued when you think about like the war on drugs. And then you think Ugh. about the- That's another podcast, sign me up. Yeah. I know, right? <laughs> I mean, and that gets me, that gets yeah. me because, yes. Yes. you know, that, well, you're right. That probably is another, and another people, people need to- Targeting systemic, yeah. But it we, is, it's another no. component of systemic racism. And, mm -hmm. you know, you, you, and I actually, the listeners can actually go back to, I think it was episode 10, the executive director of Face-to-Face -face Germantown, which is an organization that I'm on the board for, and we serve the marginalized population in the northwest part of Philadelphia. And, you know, when, when crack cocaine came on the scene, that was basically the complete demise. Like any hope that the African-American population had was taken right then and there. I have there. notes on that too. And, and it even started before then. Um, and, and I should have done more, more historical digging, but I know when we lived in Northwest Arkansas for the very brief time, it was a little less than two years ago, to my own lack of knowledge, I wasn't aware of uh, what had actually occurred. They called it Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Oh, I know that story. They kept saying we were gonna go and visit and visit and then so quickly we moved back to the Northeast. But I eventually learned about the history. And so therein lies the problem that even before the war on drugs, right, where, where that was just yet another thing, but there have been so many examples in our society where as Blacks progressed, when you think about the the Harlem Renaissance, when you think about um, even what happened, I know Rosewood for a long time we thought was a fictitious movie, but that actually happened to a town in Florida. Mm -hmm. So you look at all of these examples where Blacks, and Af African Americans were starting to get Thrive. to a healthy place economically and really find their place in society despite all the other odds that were against them. And then it was systemically, purposefully just mm -hmm. taken away, right? And so blink of an eye. see the, you know, <clears throat> and, and when I tell you, I think the other thing we can do as African-Americans is we don't tell our own story enough, right? Here I was 45 years old, just hearing from my grandmother, uh, you know, and my grandfather who's now 91 who has dementia, but he knows like his long-term memory is amazing. And so to now sit down and hear the stories that he's telling, but had I not asked, I don't know if I would have gotten, you know, these stories of what they actually uh, lived through, through the civil rights movement. And to know that our family just had land taken away from them, like mm -hmm. just because they could, you know? Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. it's understanding that systemic issues that have been uh, done over and over and over to a society and people wonder, well, they've had the same opportunities that we had. My family was immigrants. No, it's not the same. No. It's not, it has no. been very intentional and purposeful. And oh, I was just going to say purposeful. And, uh, and that's the part um, that, you know, I finally attended the African American Museum in DC in January for the first, so we finally was able to get tickets. And I couldn't make it past the second floor. Like the tears that flowed just walking through 
that place. And that's the history that I think people need to understand. And like I keep saying, some people have made it about a political issue. No, it's human. It's humanity. humanity. It's humanity. You know, it's, it's love God, love others. Like where did we lose sight of that? And, and it's been at the core of, uh, of our nation for all too long. And until we get that right, these issues will upon us for a very long time. Yeah, it's human decency, humanity mm-hmm. and human decency. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, yeah. We may look different on the outside, but you know what? God did not create any of us to be the same. Right. Yeah. And if we right. were all the mm-hmm. same, number one, how boring would it be? But none of us would be able to make a difference. And we're all here to make a difference and have an impact on the world around us. I was going to put this out there for Robin and Jill. Do you know the story of Black Wall Street? No, I've heard about it, but I've never read a lot about it. I've only yeah, heard. I know I have heard of it. And I, yeah, I know the kids learned about it, but I don't, I'm not aware. Okay. Okay, I'll make it as brief as I can. <laughs> I'm long-winded. <laughs> so I want to say the year offhand, 1921, I don't have my phone close by. It was a thriving African-American community in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, and back then, a dollar earned would stay in the community for over a year and a half before that dollar left the community, which means that people, you know, shopped within their community and they had their own, they had their own real estate places, banks, doctors, pharmacies, you name it. And it was successful and booming. And in the blink of an eye, um, there was, they, people decided to burn it down. And within a day, the whole town, like, well, city, burned down as a way to disenfranchise those people who were thriving in one day. You know, any, the one thing I've learned, um, and, and you've hinted to this, we've, you've said it, is that anytime there was progress, even if it was one person, that was speaking out and making progress and opening the eyes of, of other people and other communities and other races, they were shut down. Mm-hmm. They were either imprisoned or they were killed. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite stories is um, Angela Davis. And if, if, you, if the listeners have not seen um, the 13th, that it, you have to watch it. It is an eye opener. And when you, we're not talking politics today, but that gets into politics and it's Mm -hmm. frightening. It's people from our level need to start taking a stand and Mm -hmm. we have to start having uncomfortable conversations, number one. And it doesn't matter if you're Republican or you're Democrat, the problem is there across the board. And Mm -hmm. But she was so bold and so brave. And I, I, love, I love her story. But um, anyway, I'm, I'm digressing now because I love history and I, I could talk about people. But to me, people like that should be in our history books, yeah. in our textbooks. American no, history should have all of this and it's yeah. not there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And think and about it. She's change. still alive. And that's where it becomes real for me is that we think about these things as if they were so far off. But this, I mean, it's one, I was born in 74. This is only 10 years before my life. You know, like my mom, one generation from me. um, And though that's the part that people have to realize that 
one, you said it perfectly, Robin. It's slow. It takes time, and it's it's too slow, um, yeah. you know. But uh, but yeah, yeah. And it and it's disgusting that it's that it's been slow. Yeah. I mean, it's. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. it it's. Yeah. I, you know, it's completely unbelievable. I know I, I talked about Colombia and growing up there and, mm-hmm. um, and, and, you know, we're talking about <clears throat> history and all that. And Colombia did make history, actually, just for being what it was. <clears throat> Excuse me. But it, you know, I grew up where, you know, my next door neighbor was the president of, you know, Provident Hospital, African-American man, you know, um, my my best friend's, you know, dad and, you know, businessman next door. Um, my friend's dad was, you know, the president of his own company. Uh, the other one was a general in the military. Uh, my, my friend's uh, mom was the dean at Howard University. So my whole experience was what even if people can just have a little taste of that, mm-hmm. you know, to me, African-American meant successful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my, my friends were, you know, living in bigger houses than I was. And, um, you know, it, it just, one of, one of my friends said to me, oh, so it was kind of, it was almost in reverse of the rest of the country. And I said, no, it really isn't because this was everywhere. It's just no one was exposed to it. Mm-hmm. And I just, I find it so sad, but I, I think, um, you know, people need to have more, you know, and that's kind of the media thing we were talking about before, but they, they need to have more history. They need to have more exposure. There's some impact that I can make over time. Um, just, I do feel like white people feel like they can talk to me more um, and, and ask questions kind of secretly just to find, is this okay? Is that okay? What do you think? Do you, you know, do you understand this or that? Um, and I, because I think a lot of people are very hesitant to ask. Uh, ask the mm-hmm. hard questions and Robin I think it I think it is wonderful you know when I got your email with the questions and everything I, I think people need to say look I don't know and, and I think it's okay for not if for everyone not to have I don't know everything either I have there are questions I need to ask if this is okay or that's okay and and I think just the honest discussion amongst everyone I think that's really what needs to happen yeah and I think we have to stop hiding from the problem Mm -hmm. and face the Mm -hmm. problem because until we're willing to do that and and face Mm -hmm. it head on, how how is it ever going to have a solution? Mm -hmm. One thing that I had said to Robin in a conversation that we have, I think for far too long, people have just been comfortable in their ignorance. And um, Mm -hmm. because of that, you know, if they don't know true history, well, then they can say, oh, I just didn't know that. But you should want to know why people feel the way they do. People have a reason to feel disenfranchised and, you know, like feel like the country is just not doing what it can to recognize them as people. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ignorance is bliss, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think a lot of people mm-hmm. just yeah. are satisfied with well, what what they don't know, they don't know. Yeah. Versus, 
I want to know what I don't know so I can make a difference. And I'm hoping that being vulnerable and, and stepping outside of my own comfort zone will help other people be able to do that too. Yeah. And, and, and I would just say, add to that, right? I think we've all acknowledged the conversation is never easy. It's going to be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things I encouraged, um, my white colleagues, because some of them reached out and, and others didn't. But like I said, in my 23 years with the company, this was the first time I actually had years and years of these same types of George Floyd incidents happening over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And this mm -hmm. was the first time. All those other times, I would bury my head in the sand. Mm -hmm. I would go to work angry, but I would put on my smile and mm -hmm. show up and perform. And that's what so many are feeling and struggling with now because some of the conversations still aren't happening. But where they are, I encourage people, ask the questions. I'd rather you say something that, um, you know, offends a little, just <laughs> and, and we can correct it, you know, and, and, and have the conversation versus not saying anything at all because being silent causes more pain, hurt, and frustration. And it almost feels like, where there's silence, there is acceptance. And that may not necessarily be the case. So my encouragement to so many who do care is to reach out, have the conversation, um, and it'll it'll go a long way. And 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 don't be as fearful about, you know, should I not because I don't know what to say, but making that connection, um, it, it, it speaks volumes. I agree. I have also gone to work and just, like you said, just gotten through the day. I know that um, Tamir writes that case really hit home. He's the same age as my son. And I saw like a picture recently that said, hi, my name is Tamir Rice. I should have graduated this year, but yeah. no one killed me. Yeah. And it was just like gut wrenching, like literally you have to realize these people are gone but it, they're not forgotten it's etched yeah. in your memory yeah. <clears throat> especially as yeah. a parent at trayvon martin mm -hmm. going to the store to get can't skittles yeah yeah talking on the phone um you know when you have african-american sons who are the same age as these people being gunned down you it, it's cause for concern and that's a whole nother episode because of that law. Mm -hmm. I can't think of the name of it, but the law. Stand your ground. Stand, Stand your ground. ground. But you know, one of the things I will say, raising an African-American female um, is I look at Sandra Bland, right? And I, and I see my 13-year-old who's now exposed to social media. Robin, I was so glad she was there standing when you and I talked, right? Because yeah. there's a range of emotions that she's experiencing as well in an outpouring. And I also have to educate everything you see on social media isn't real. So right. if you have questions, you know, it's the constant conversation to make sure she's educated and she really understands what's at the root versus getting emotional with, with everything on the surface. Um, but I said all that to say, I have to have the same conversation with her about how to respond, how to react if you're pulled or, you know, uh, or stopped uh, uh, by a cop or engaged with, like I said, uncomfortably in a store if someone's making accusations. And so 
yes, our black men do have it very, very hard, but I can't speak volumes enough being, a, you know, an African-American female and having seen, Jill, when you were sharing the story about your son going to his first dance, I can remember one of my first dances. Uh, I went to an ROTC military ball with one of my, uh, my boyfriends at the time. We were 16 years old. And on our way home from the dance, I'm dressed in a ball gown. He's dressed in his ROTC military uniform. And what should have been a normal traffic stop for two 16-year-olds, he ends up handcuffed and pinned down on the ground. And he was respectful. He said all the right things that his parents had taught him. And despite all of that preparation, we both found ourselves, me hysterical, seeing this, you know, take place. And so um, I don't know where all that came from, but I just wanted to share that other mm-hmm. story that just in addition yeah. to um, our young black men that are, that are, that our black females are, you know, African-American are hurting us. Um, I'm really, I'm and our, our uh, white moms, right? You know, like, like you said, biracial. I mean, we can't stress it enough, but I will say, like I said at the beginning, I do feel like this is, this time feels different because I feel like the world is caring versus mm-hmm. where it um, has for so long been in the Black community. It felt like we were suffering in silence, you know? Can I just piggyback off that and say that I agree that this is the first time in the in my lifetime that I feel like the whole world has taken a front seat in our struggle. Yeah. And the one thing about the protest is there were protests on six out of the seven continents. That's powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Six of the seven continents were all participating in protests, standing with us. I don't know that it was like that during the civil rights movement. Again, I wasn't alive then, but that was, that was truly powerful for me to see. And I'm like, I think that we have a responsibility to keep the conversation going because it won't end with one conversation. Uh Right. I, th- I think that visual, I think being able to see it, yeah. I think our country doesn't believe it unless it's right in front of their eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, it's just not been available to see because it's been hidden. Um, you know, the truth has been hidden for so, so long. And those in power have just wanted to, to keep that away from everyone. And now it's, it's out there. The, hopefully this will continue to, to be change. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, when I saw those, when I saw the protests all around the world, I mean, I think everyone, right. Like you just takes, took your breath away, like unbelievable. Mm -hmm. But you know, at the same time, it's kind of like, okay, it's about time. It's about time. Right. You know, long overdue, long overdue. It just, yeah, I could go on and on, but it just, it doesn't make any sense that it's gone on this long. I think what I find the most empowering is that our youth have taken the forefront on movement. And we need them to, because in order to keep the conversation going, they need to be a part of it. Yeah. So that's empowering to me. And like I've gone to peaceful protests here in Lansdale and it's been organized by the youth. Mm -hmm. 
Every single one was organized by youth. Mm -hmm. I love seeing that too, these remarkable young people. I think it's really important that we as, as leaders, as, as female leaders and strong women, that we encourage our, the younger generation, the younger girls, not only our daughters, but their friends and, and any youth that we can come in contact with to encourage them to use their voice and stand their ground, but to stay true to themselves and, and follow their heart, but lead in a way that demonstrates humanity. And, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, whether they're white or they're African-American or, or Asian, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Like we're all humans. We all have yeah. hearts. Right. Mm -hmm. So as we yeah. go, you know, maybe, maybe that's a, a mentorship program that needs to be created and maybe there's one out there and people just don't know what it mm -hmm. is. So I encourage, um, Listeners, if you know of any of these organizations, share them. I will share them everywhere. Um, and, you know, likewise, ladies, if you know of those programs locally that we can tap into or that I can share, um, obviously share those and, and tell me what they are so that we can start spreading mm -hmm. the word. And I think that, you know, as, as women too, and like we're, none of us are afraid to speak our voice. So yeah you know, maybe we, maybe we tap into those resources and go into schools. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know what the actual answers are, but I think mm -hmm. we have to help keep the momentum with these, with the younger generation and help move yeah. them forward oh, and encourage them mm -hmm. to, yeah. to continue to use their voice and to stand firm for the sake of humanity. Can I tell you something? It was a 15 year old girl who captured George Floyd's murder on her on her phone and started this movement. Did you know that? No, no. I did not. 15 wow. year old girl. Wow. 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 Unbelievable. Wow. And imagine having had witnessed that too. Mm -mm. Bye. Yeah. Mm -hmm. At that age. Right. Mm -mm. She received yeah. death threats um, because of it in, in the town. Wow. City. Yeah. Wow. Unbelievable. But I think. Um, that was transformational for our young people mm -hmm. to get them civically engaged, mm -hmm. even if they're not old enough to vote, to realize mm -hmm. that, you know, right is right and wrong is wrong. Yeah. We have That's a voice. We can speak yeah. against injustice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, ladies, thank you for being here. Thank you for having this very difficult conversation with me. I'm honored that you would share your stories and share your perspectives. And I really hope that we've inspired the listeners and given them food for thought per se, you know, enlightened them with some things maybe they didn't know, like, like I didn't know. So thank you so much for, be, for being here. Thanks for having Thanks for us. Having me. Thank you for having yeah. us. And that's a wrap friends. Thank you so much for listening today. I am grateful to have you here with me. If you enjoyed this episode and found the information helpful, will you please take a moment to subscribe and leave a rating and review? That would mean the world to me. It will also help others find the podcast. I really look forward to getting to know my listeners. Will you please connect with me on Instagram? You can find me at the Robin Graham. You can also find me on Facebook and LinkedIn as Robin Graham. 
And I invite you to join my private Facebook group, The Brand Marketing Insider. Please spread the word about the second phase podcast. Until next time, remember to smile.